Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Today is June 5th, 2015, and I uh, really, really appreciate you being with us, um, <clears throat> uh, joining me today uh, in our virtual studio from all across the planet are uh, Tiffany, Gabby, and Doug. Hi. And uh, Doug, we're having some technical difficulties here, but uh, Doug will be back with us shortly. And Erica, unfortunately, will not be with us today. She has some time conflicts. So uh, this is our new time, uh, weekly on Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern. So we're hoping that people will be able to listen. And of course, if you can't listen live, uh, all of our episodes are archived on the Sot Talk Radio page on Blog Talk Radio. That can be found by just searching Blog Talk Radio for Sot, S-O-T-T. So today is our uh, our uh, revisiting of the topic of uh, EMF exposure. Um, uh, a little while back, we had our guest, uh, Larry Bowers, on the show, uh, and Larry is uh, well-credentialed, has spent many years working with uh, electromagnetic uh, technology, has worked on things like uh, satellite communications, um, and uh, he is kind enough to join us again today to revisit the topic of EMF electromagnetic frequency exposure, um, the kind of positives and negatives of that. although. When you start talking about it, there aren't really that many positives. There's more negatives than positives. Um, I guess you could make an argument for this technology, you know, increasing the uh, the availability of communications in our society and things like that. Um, at the same time, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of information coming out now about how it's uh, damaging to the body, uh, to the mind, and uh, to our overall kind of state of well-being. So... Um, if we can uh, go to Larry for a little uh, reintroduction. Larry, can you hear me okay? It sounds like we're having a little bit of technical difficulties. How about uh, Doug and Gabby? Are you guys on the line here all right? Yeah, we're here. All right, great. Yeah, we're having a little dirty noise. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. Which is interesting because the show is about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're getting beat. Okay, better. Hey, that sounds better. Yeah. Tiff and Larry, can you yeah, hear us on your line? Yeah, it seems to have gone away oh, a little go. bit. Great. Well, I wonder if it's coming from me because I can't actually hear it. It, it is gone now. Okay, good. Uh, I guess, Larry, would you mind um, just taking a few minutes to kind of reintroduce yourself to our audience and, and tell us a little bit about your experience in this field? Yeah, sure, sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, welcome to the show, everybody out there. And, uh, you know, if you heard the last show, you've probably got, uh, you know, a, a big earful on EMF. Uh, but uh, my, my background, I'm retired, electrical engineer. Uh, I worked for about 30 years for Lockheed Martin, mostly in uh, satellite system and payload design. 
but my background primarily was in electromagnetic fields, scattering, uh, basically the, the physics behind electromagnetic fields. And uh, that's uh, where a lot of my interests originated in terms of uh, trying to characterize uh, the EMF problem and understand the biological effects. <clears throat> One of the things that I think that uh, is really important for people to, uh, you know, get a kind of a uh, basic understanding of is that EMF comes in all kinds of different forms and categories. And uh, if we look at the uh, uh, the general nature of it, uh, the, the part of it that comes from, uh, from the sun and the interaction with the... Uh, Earth ionosphere waveguide, that would be considered to be a natural form of EMF that uh, quite possibly we've, we've been uh, conditioned to uh, throughout you know, maybe uh, billions of years on the Earth, whatever our origins may be. And then there is uh, some other forms that are man-made. And the distinction between uh, what's harmful and what's not is beginning to be understood in the form of bandwidth. That is, if, if the source is appearing to be wideband, noise-like in nature, we're finding more and more cases where this is, uh, is harmful. So one of the basic things you can look at is, uh, is the bandwidth of the signal uh, that we're talking about in terms of the EMF and what's, what kind of effect that may have on your uh, systemic functions and metabolism. So that's a very basic understanding there. Uh, if you if you uh, if you look at uh, things like the Bryce uh, technology, you're looking at uh, you know EMF in the form of tones that are used uh, primarily to do healing, hmm. and those are extremely narrow band single frequency tones that uh, are not harmful. We're finding more and more that it is the wideband noise-like nature of these signals that actually produces the physical harm. Larry, just to make it even more basic for all the technology dummies out there, can you describe what exactly bandwidth is? Because I hear it a lot, and I'm not quite sure what it is. Okay, well, if if we go back to the cell phones, okay, your very first cell phones, remember those big handheld units that, uh, that came out? Mm-hmm. Those were analog, and uh, that was because we did not have the digital technology at that time to be able to put uh, put up all the, uh, the GSM, digital signals, CDMA, all that kind of stuff. So you had fairly narrow-band analog tones, that were actually used to carry the voice information. So that voice information bandwidth is only a few, a few kilohertz. But now when you, when you step up to digital communications, uh, what we've got is a technology development that allows you to transmit uh, many, many uh, kilohertz, for example, hundreds of kilohertz or even up to megahertz of information. Now, that's, we're talking about orders of magnitude of uh, information bandwidth. And that requires RF bandwidth, all right, radio frequency bandwidth in the signal. So your cell phones today operate on a much greater bandwidth than the original cell phones and the old analog networks that we we uh, we all were used to back in the, back in the day. So it's really just a function of how much information are you trying to transmit. So if you look at your cell phones today, those that are 
you know, uh, 3G, 4G, so on and so forth, connected to the Internet, those phones are used to receiving and transmitting very, very wideband uh, signals. And that makes them even more dangerous than uh, even the higher power narrowband signals. Does that help, Tiffany? Yeah, yeah. So is, that, is the wide bandwidth uh, considered more harmful because uh, it's more like a like a gunshot like a shotgun blast? I mean, is it bec- is it because it's more dirty or because it covers a wider area? Well, it's it's I would I would say uh, describe it more like it's because it's noise like. All right. So when you start to get uh, you know tremendous amounts of bandwidth, uh, it's being you look more and more like a white noise signal that you might look at on a oscilloscope or hear on a radio, that kind of thing. So it's it's more like and that results from these these very quick, rapid digital transitions that occur in the signals that you're trying to transmit. And that forces the bandwidth to be greater, and then, you know, you've got the exact opposite of a single tone. Mm-hmm. A single tone of RF is just a single frequency. And uh, many of uh, many of good physicists today uh, actually do believe that uh, even, even at the power levels that approach the level where you begin to actually heat the flash, uh, as long as you stay below that, that if your if your signal bandwidth is low enough, the amount of physical harm is quite small. But as soon as you begin to increase the bandwidth of that signal, you end up with uh, you can look at it like a, like noise. You're increasing the noise that is incident on your body, and if the frequency is high enough, it will penetrate your body. Mm. So there's sure. a certain amount of uh, and then you know if, if you if you look at the you know the effects of that, um, there's a lot of evidence to show that this interferes with uh, with metabolic kind of functions at the subcellular level. Uh, so this would be at the level of your mitochondria, and this affects energy production. And we all know when that starts to go, uh, that we begin to uh, approach you know various different chronic disease conditions that depend on the nature of the individual, genetics, uh, other environmental factors, and so on. I have a question, Larry, related to that. Since there is the documentation of affection, you know, at the cellular level, has there been any health organization or any government or anybody, you know, an official sideline that has given a warning about these technologies, an official warning? Well, um, you know, it, it kind of uh, depends on who who you're talking about, uh, whether it's a, a NGO, government, or or even cell phone companies. Uh, mm-hmm. The cell phone companies, if you look at the if you look at the uh, agreements, if you want to put it that way, of of what you're doing when you buy one of their phones and operate it. Uh, most of them give you a warning that uh, you know that there there can be um, health effects, and uh, uh, without trying to refer to any studies or anything like that, uh, their only purpose in doing so is to absolve themselves of any responsibility or lawsuits in the future. Mm-hmm. So that's one level of learning. Um, 
There are uh, NGOs. There are various different other institutions. Most of them are associated with um, the schools or universities. And uh, a lot of these have come forward uh, based on uh, trying to apply the precautionary principle. Since it is so difficult to isolate a particular uh, cause of various different chronic diseases, um, they have uh, really tried to push uh, uh, an application of the precautionary principle that is cut down on uh, the power level, so on and so forth, until... Uh, more information is known and pinned to the actual effects of, you know, high-frequency noise in the EMF. So there's there's various different little warnings here and there. Um, uh, it's it's very difficult though because the problem has been that uh, people just assume that you know these devices are safe, and uh, you know that that assumption has closer to wishful thinking in the sense that, uh, that you know, you don't do your research and you don't figure out, you know, what's, what's really known and what's not known. And there are a tremendous number of studies which point to the, uh, the, the health effects, uh, the damaging health effects of EMF over, over the long haul. Did I, did I cover that, Gabby? Yeah, that, yeah. It's uh, mainly because, you know, I'm concerned, for example, the use of, of cell phones by children, you know, all the games that they promote for children through cell phones, and, but also even parents encouraged to use, like, even applications as WhatsApp, you know, as, as early as four years old. And I thought, you know, that I read or saw a warning somewhere, at least the brain surgeon, neurosurgeon, you know, was given specific guidelines, you know, and talking about studies related with brain tumors and how children were so susceptible and shouldn't use, you know, cell phones at all, you know. So, yes. Oh, uh, yeah, well, that's one thing we probably should... Yeah, yeah, that, that's probably one thing we should uh, we should really emphasize up front is, is that all of these EMFs, whether it's dirty power on the grid or uh, um, magnetic fields, or, or uh, Wi-Fi or any of these uh, RF uh, digital signals, they all affect the child much more than they do the adult. And that's because the children are, their cells and, and so on are, are uh, maturing, they're, they're dividing, they're, they're, there's a lot of growth involved, and the effect of these signals is far greater on children than it would be on uh, you or I, for example. So that's a, that's a big part of it, and and yet there, there's a lot of information about the uh, uh, the uh, susceptibility of children to cell phone uh, induced brain cancers and brain tumors. So uh, even though you know you have the industry and governments and stuff uh, coming out and trying to deny it, kind of like the case of, uh, of of Quack Watch, you know, it's, if they're hit is. That are designed to, uh, you know, actually get into ad hominem attacks and so forth, and uh, this this tends to make it very difficult for, you know, very good researchers to come forward with their data. Hmm. I was reading in one of your articles, Larry, that uh, you've put some excellent articles up on the SOT uh, 
health and wellness section uh, about EMF, just kind of covering and uh, summarizing all this stuff. And it was saying also, uh, one thing that really struck me is the effects that uh, these uh, cell phones can have on vision, particularly in children. Is there any way you could go over that a little bit? Uh, well, I'm not too familiar with some of the details of, uh, you know, exactly what, uh, what various effects are. Uh, what you can say uh, is, you know, from a scientific standpoint and a measurement standpoint, is that uh, there's something called the, uh, the specific absorption uh, ratio. And that has to do with when you put a cell phone very close up to your ear, how much uh, radiation is actually absorbed directly into the flesh, that would be the ears, the eyes, the brain, the head, so on and so forth, uh, versus how much is scattered off the head. All right, so now the, you, normally you would think, well, geez, uh, they ought to be, you know, roughly the same and just proportional from the distance that you put the cell phone to your head. But this is not true. Uh, when, when you put, the, put a cell phone so close to your head, as, as close to your ear, there is a, an effect that actually, uh, that where the flesh, because of the very nearness of the antenna to the, to the flesh, the flesh will actually absorb more radiation than it would otherwise if the, if the, if the antenna were, or the phone were held physically away from the ear. And this, this drops off very quickly with distance. So uh, you can just simply keep the phone uh, even just a few inches away from the ear, or better yet, hold it two feet away from you and use the speakerphone. Then the specific absorption ratio ends up going down quite a bit. And this is much more for children because, again, their flesh is growing, and there is a whole lot more, uh, you know, cases, I believe, that, uh, that are out there that, to show the damage to children later in life, uh, you know, due to their uh, their cell phone use when they're putting it directly up to their head in both the eyes and the ears and, of course, the head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that related to the... A group of doctors, in, uh, uh, I believe uh, quite a few, there was a, there, I think it's in uh, in the article somewhere, uh, a group of uh, doctors that were under the head of a, of a doctor here in the United States, uh, he actually uh, recommended very strongly that children not use or be allowed to use cell phones at all except in the case of emergency. So there, there is, there's a, a lot of good doctors out there which are instructing their patients and their staff, that is, lots of other doctors, to uh, be sure to pass this kind of information on to the, their patients that have children and they have cell phones. Mm-hmm. And these, okay, so this is some of the information related to midterm, long-term effects. How about immediate effects? Do we have data like that, you know, this kind of technology affects, you know, mood behaviors, for example, or the mind or the soul, so to speak? Uh, say that again, Gabby, I'm not sure I caught that. Yes, is there data to suggest that this technology has immediate effects on mood behavior, for example? Uh, on what? What was that last word? On mood, mood and behavior. behavior. Oh, mood and behavior, yeah. Um, 
Well, the, the big problem, uh, you know, that occurs there is uh, after you have had uh, a serious uh, amount of time of exposure, you become what what is called in the in the area um, electrosensitivity. So you become EMS sensitive, and in those cases, uh, you most certainly will have effects on mood and behavior because you're you're inducing things like headaches. Uh, you're inducing, you know, lots of uh, changes that are occurring, uh, uh, possibly involving brain uh, neurotransmitters, and so you're getting uh, lots of different effects that uh, that somebody who is just being, you know, recently exposed to EMF uh, may not exhibit at all. But uh, there are cases, you know, where people become sensitive, and all kinds of effects, like you're talking about, occur. And, uh, you know, this is uh, it's, uh, where, you know, it, it's very sad because, you know, these, many of these people don't know what's happening, and it's only much, much later that they finally, you know, get the uh, feedback in their, in their own cases to begin to uh, really cut back on their EMF exposure. Mm-hmm. If you'd like, I'll get, I'll get you a recent case uh, right here uh, near me. Um, uh, this this is a case for dirty power exposure. Now, uh, you know, she um, she has become very sensitive to cell phones. She has one. Uh, she does use the, the speakerphone. Uh, she can tell when they're on around her. Um, hmm. She can tell certainly if somebody inside of a car has got a, uh, a cell phone that is on. Um, she has become very sensitive from the standpoint of headaches. She doesn't look very healthy. Uh, and and uh, I'll tell you from you know my own feeling is is, is that she and her, she and her husband uh, have been exposed to dirty power for an extremely long period of time five years they built a home five years ago and they uh, off the grid and they powered the solar system solar system is very noisy and unless you filter it you're going to have very levels of grid noise and once again grid noise. Is high frequency noise. It's not just the 50 hertz or the 60 hertz. It's the noise that's on the grid, and that's produced in this case by an inverter. And that solar inverter, you know, uh, exposes them to that noise for all the time that they're in the house, sleeping at night, so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. they have been exposed to uh, uh, five years of this high level noise. And, uh, for example, her husband uh, can't sleep without a uh, fan blowing pretty hard in the room uh, for noise. Uh, and uh, I believe her health is, is suffering significantly from this. Now, nobody can prove that, uh, but she has become EMS sensitive. So she has crossed that threshold where, you know, the kind of effects that uh, Gabby just mentioned are occurring to her uh, with her cell phone or any environment at all where she's experiencing uh, high-frequency noise. So uh, we had just recently done, done some testing at her house, and uh, the noise levels are off the meter. They're so high. And, uh, you know, uh, one, one of the guys is going to be spending some time trying to figure out whether or not the wiring in the home is responsible for the extremely high uh, inverter noise level. So that, that's just an example of, you know, how how uh, somebody likely uh, became EMS sensitive and is now, you know, severely affected. 
Now, is this the is this how someone becomes EMS sensitive? Is it always because of exposure, or are there other things that could possibly lead to uh, to this EMS sensitivity? Yes, uh, I, I think that uh, that uh, just the second part of your your uh, question is correct. Um, if you if you look at the uh, the, the areas of, of diets and uh, and toxic toxic exposure that you guys have actually covered quite a bit uh, very well, those two areas also affect whether or not what, where your threshold level is going to be in terms of EMS. But, but the reverse is also true. If you have a very high EMS uh, environment and you're becoming EMS sensitive you may become more sensitive to toxic exposure and also to poor mm. diet. So mm. all these things are connected, and that's why it makes it so difficult from a diagnostic or clinical standpoint to say, you know, the reason for your chronic condition is A, B, C, whatever it may be. It's extremely difficult to do that, and uh, that's why the studies, you know, are so inconclusive in terms of, you know, being able to, you know, put a finger directly on something that does something that produces the disease. Hmm. Well, it sounds like to me from this lady that you know, she and her husband, he said, spent five years in an extremely noisy EMF environment. Um, but something from one of the EMF articles that you posted, like on a cellular level, uh, if your cells become nutrient deficient and they can't allow nutrients in and waste out, um, you can become more sensitive to EMF signals. So if exactly. if you have some kind of cellular damage, whether it's caused by prolonged EMF exposure or poor diet or stress or anything like that, that can make you even more sensitive. Yes, uh, it, they're all connected. So. Uh... You know, if, if for example, if you uh, really took care of your um, your your detoxing, and you really take care of your diet, uh, much like what you guys have already uh, talked about, then you're going to be able to stand much higher levels of EMF. It doesn't mean you want to. It just means that you're protected at a at a higher level. Somebody that has got a poor diet, you know, has got uh, a lot of uh, toxins and uh, toxic uh, burden and load, is very likely going to have a much lower threshold to which, you know, they can stand the uh, the effects of EMS. Mm-hmm. So I, that's why I think it's, it really is so important to, to deal with all three. Mm-hmm. And we just cannot... EMF. I mean, we don't even know when we walk into town or store or whatever, we're getting blasted by extremely high levels of Wi-Fi, for example. Um, I think think Jonathan was mentioning that uh, earlier. uh, You know, if you if you don't know what your what your exposure is going to be, which is the case for EMF, then you're far better off. You know, uh, uh, rather than 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 trying to get too paranoid about it, uh, just work the the health and the in the uh, detox areas, and that will give you much more resilience when it comes to EMF, which may be more very difficult for you to tell. Larry, there is a question from our from our chat room. Um, the question is: 
Is it possible that all these EMF noise may have chaotic effects not only in the human body, but also perhaps somehow influence natural weather patterns? Uh, I'm having trouble hearing you, Gabby. Could you uh, repeat that? Yes. The question is, is it possible that all, that all these EMF noise may have chaotic effect on uh, not only on the human body, but also on natural weather patterns? And she's talking about earth changes, for example, as a contributing factor of earth changes. Well, you know, that, that, that's, that's a really tough one to answer. I suppose it's possible. Um, you know, we, we do know that, uh, that it, when the, uh, when the sun, uh, goes into, you know, kind of bizarre behavior, kind of like it is now, and, uh, we get, you know, some really bursts of various kinds of activity that, uh, take the, the normal, uh, you know, uh, uh, human resonances that we're, we're used to living with and, uh, alter those significantly. Uh, we do know there, there are lots of epidemiological studies that have shown the effects on, uh, melatonin production, uh, that it gets into the neurotransmitters, it gets into suicide rates, it gets into heart attack rates, uh, so, so there, there certainly is, uh, an effect, you know, that is produced by the sun that causes lots of, uh, you know, strange things to happen to people, you know, down here. Uh, whether or not that would have a reverse effect from the standpoint of the EMF that we produce, uh, human man-made, on that kind of thing, uh, I, you know, it's it's, uh, it's really hard to say. I, I would say probably minimal, uh, but but again, uh, you know, with all the changes going on, this is an area where we know so little about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Larry, I had a quick question about uh, <clears throat> short-term exposure. Um, I was just recently uh, in California uh, for some work, and I noticed uh, in the city that because where I live is in a rural area, and so we do have cell service and we do have Wi-Fi and things like that, but it's certainly not as concentrated as it is in the city. <clears throat> and I've never considered myself to be electronically sensitive, not the way that you speak about some of these other cases. Oh. You know, I don't I don't get nauseous or migraines or anything like that. Um, but I did notice uh, as soon as I went, especially in the airport uh, specifically, and then as, it, when I got into the city, I, I felt like I could actually feel it. Uh, it was jittery. Uh, my, my legs were twitching. My muscles were twitching. And I don't know, uh, certainly some of that could be explained by stress or other factors. But I just kept getting this nagging feeling that I was just feeling this high concentration of uh, of Wi-Fi and, and cell signals. And I wondered, you know, does it have to be long-term exposure that causes electronic sensitivity? Or could you could you feel something like that going from an area of low concentration to higher concentration conceptually? Well, there's, there's a lot of people that... Um you know, fall in the, in the same class of experience that you, you just described for yourself. And uh, I do feel that uh, as you become uh, more sensitive to your environment, as you become more sensitive to a clean environment in particular, that you can begin to sense this and not be, that doesn't mean you're, you're becoming even sensitive and you're, you're on the edge of chronic disease. 
So uh, I have felt the same thing, and uh, airports are a big source of it because the Wi-Fi environment, the cell phone environment, the people that are packed together, you're you're talking about a really uh, nasty EMF environment in there. Mm-hmm. That's all wideband, high-frequency noise uh, sources. So uh, I, I think that you know my own feeling would be, Jonathan, that you that uh, you you are simply uh, getting more more and more sensitive to your environment itself, which is good. That's, it has to do with, with clearing out, uh, you know, cleaning up the diet, clearing out toxins, and so on and so forth. And then you can tell when you run into an environment where it's extremely bad, just like you would be able to tell if you suddenly ate a bad meal and you could point to it directly and say, boy, that's, uh, that's what caused me some problems here. Uh, you're sure. not going to enter into chronic disease condition because of, you know, one meal or one exposure to EMS. Right. It was amazing to see um, <clears throat> just the high concentration of people using their cell phones. I mean, I, of course, like, like I said, I live in a rural area, and still a lot of people here use cell phones. But um, uh, specifically, I was in Los Angeles, and every, like, 98 99% of the people everywhere where I looked around had a phone mashed up to their head. And I didn't see one person the entire time using um, either speakerphone or uh, earbuds, you know, headphones or anything to kind of try to distance that. Um, Mm. It was pretty wild. And that leads into my my other question that I had was, uh, does it actually make a difference using uh, earbuds? I was curious because you have this wire going from the phone to your ear is there really any difference there? Is it only minimal, or is that helpful to use uh, earphones? Well, if it's a uh, if, if your phone can can handle a uh, an air tube, uh, which really all it's doing is putting the the speaker close to the other end of the tube, then yeah, there's no issue with that. Uh, there's no there's no metal involved. Uh, it's not going to act like an antenna, and it's going to be perfectly safe to use it that way. So. You feel like you can't use the uh, speakerphone because of the environment you're in, then you certainly could uh, just hook up an air tube uh, if, if you can get one that, that works with your particular phone, and then uh, you know operate the, the same way. And you know a noisy environment won't won't affect you as nearly as much. Uh, sure. One thing that's good for people to to picture is uh, when, when your cell phone, if you have it. Uh, in front of you, you're looking at the number of bars. Let's say you have one or two bars. Uh, what that means is that your, your reception for the cell tower is not very good, and your phone will be jacking its power up close to the very maximum that it can be. So if, if you're in a situation where you've only got one or two bars on the phone, yes, you can make a phone call, and yes, you so on and so forth. But you know, the problem is, is that your phone is now transmitting it uh, very close to or at the very highest power level it can achieve. Well, this is not mm. good to, if that phone is right next to your head. Mm. On the other hand, if your phone is giving you five bars, then yeah, you, you're actually, the phone is going to be transmitting it at fairly low power. And that is preferable. All right? uh, now, it's, it depends on where you're at. If you're at, if you're in your home and you're you're inside your house and let's say in your bedroom you got five bars on the on the phone, 
then uh, your your cell tower, is, whichever one it, it is, is radiating and getting in at very high power levels to your bedroom. Mm. So you can you can use your phone basically as a uh, as an RF meter. It really is. The number of bars tells you uh, not only you know how how uh, uh, how attenuated the cell phone tower is that your phone is talking to. But it also tells you, uh, you know, how much power your phone is likely to be transmitting if you decide to make a call. Mm. So mm. you can use your, if you look at your cell phone, you know, bar meter as a uh, RF meter, it's going to tell you an awful lot about your environment and whether or not your home is fairly quiet. Uh, if you're getting five bars inside your house, um, you know, you're being irradiated. 24/7 by that cell tower. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, you know EMF exposure is cumulative. Okay, so it's just like radiation. If you get a high dose, that's okay because you know it, it can be offset with periods of low exposure. Okay, it's just like people at Fukushima. You know, they they can go in for a short period of time into the reactor area but they have got to spend a very long period of time away from the reactor and any radiation. So same thing, same basic thing with uh, EMF. And so this this, uh, this chronic exposure from a cell tower, you know, is 24-7. And so it's important that you, you, uh, you know, try to get that exposure level inside the living space and the workspace down. And, uh, of course, if you can't, it's not much you can do about it uh, except to, you know, put up uh, screening or use uh, reflective paint and stuff like that. But uh, it's it's at least important to know. So, Larry, back to the, the earbud question. Um, just want to make sure that people know that there's a difference between regular earbuds that you would listen to, like music on your phone, for instance, versus an air tube which actually works differently from uh, regular earbuds. So make sure you use an air tube and not just plain earbuds. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And also uh, there's, 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 uh, there's the wireless version of that, which is Bluetooth. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you can, you can uh, hook your phone up to, uh, you know, to uh, a Bluetooth uh, network and then put it on your Bluetooth headset, and uh, that headset is a transmitter and receiver. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're you're dealing with the same kinds of issues, uh, wireless, and you're putting it right up next to your head when you decide to use a, a Bluetooth uh, earphone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that uh, another area that, that, that really helps people a lot, too, I think, is, uh, you know, if you, if you use a... You really should not be using Wi-Fi at all. Um, part of the problem is, is that sometimes it's difficult to turn that off on your laptop. And many people walk around, they're using their laptops, and they don't realize the wireless is on. And when it's on, it's constantly transmitting and trying to find a, uh, a source uh, to connect with. So, you know, if you have a laptop and you're not totally sure if the wireless is off, you should go into the drivers and disable the driver. You can do that through the control panel. Disable the, mm-hmm. the wireless driver entirely, and then you know for a fact it will never come on until you enable it again. Mm-hmm. Sure. <clears throat> so we're talking about a, a 
significant difference between your ambient environment and the devices that you have around you. So I might I might be in an environment where there's say a 4G network and you know 10 Wi-Fi networks around me, um, but by having these transmitting devices near my body, I'm going to be making that worse. Is it exponentially worse? Well, it depends on, on how close. Um, sure, once once you get to the point where the antenna is resting directly against your body, this is why uh, you know it makes sense uh, to you know look at your phone if you have to you know try to find uh, some net information on it to find out where the antenna is. Okay, it could be somewhere probably on the back of the antenna or back of the uh, unit. Uh, that's mm-hmm. where the antenna will be. Uh, you can certainly make sure that that is pointing away from you. And uh, it's going to be separate from your body by at least an inch or two or whatever it may be. But uh, that's you know going to be far better. Remember I said uh, specific absorption, absorption uh, ratio. Okay, that the, yeah. if you put that antenna directly on your skin, that, S, that SAR is going to go up. And that means that it's getting more efficient coupling to your flesh. So even just having a slight, you know, uh, m- uh, distance between the actual antenna itself and your uh, your body uh, is giving you some additional protection. So if you actually have to carry it, know where your antenna is and keep that antenna, you know, as pointed, you know, as far away from your body as you can. Sure. So better to keep it in a in a bag than in your pocket. Well, you know, the, the, the safest thing that, uh, that, uh, that you can do if you're, if you're concerned about that and you don't need to be uh, reachable at every possible moment uh, mm-hmm. is put your phone and it's light up. That's the only way to turn it off. If, if you, if you can turn your phone on, power off, and the phone is still going to be, you know, talking to the uh, cell tower. It's still going to be maintaining mm-hmm. communications and saying, I'm here, you know, and the cell tower says, oh, I know you're there, and someone says, the call comes mm-hmm. in, and boom, they send the signal out. But mm-hmm. uh, if you were to put your phone in flight mode, uh, by law, uh, it must actually never transmit. Mm-hmm. At least the laws are written now. So that means sure. that if you use flight mode, you can be sure that your your phone is not going to transmit, and so you can carry it any way you want. And for example, uh, the gal I was talking about here locally, I told her that you know, leave your phone and fl- and this, she does this now. She leaves your phone in flight mode, and then she only checks the messages periodically during the day. So uh, people that want to get hold of her have got to leave a message. And they understand that, you know, she is not going to be reachable, you know, in the moment. And that within an hour or two, she'll call them back. So that's really the safest way to use the cell phone and to minimize the radiation that you're, you're people, people tend to forget that it's not just, it's not just the radiation on you. You're radiating everybody around you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so from, from a consideration standpoint, you know, it's, it's it's really a good thing to put your flight your put your phone in flight mode most certainly if you get into a car with anybody because uh, mm-hmm. you know typically you've got you know let's, let's say four people get in the car they all all have a cell phone uh, I think their phones are off nobody's talking on it and the radiation is zero well that's not true 
they're all their phones are talking to the, the base thing. And uh, so that they are all transmitting, and, you know, you, you've got a little microwave oven uh, on wheels. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Kind of like secondhand yeah. radiation, like secondhand cigarette smoke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's, a, that's a good way to put it. Uh, you know, if, if you want to leverage that, that uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, since uh, since the last show, Larry, I've actually changed my cell phone behavior a great deal, and and putting it in flight mode all the time when I'm not, you know, actually using it is something that I've started doing, and and you know, making sure when I'm in the car that everybody has theirs in flight mode, um, just to to try and avoid uh, that exposure. You know, if I if I am, you know, even if I'm doing something on my phone like uh, like reading an article or something like that, I'll load it up. Put the, and then put the phone in, in flight mode and, and just read it while it's it, it's completely not transmitting. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm not particularly sensitive, so I can't say I've necessarily noticed anything, but uh, but it, it's just peace of mind that I'm not uh, constantly being, uh, you know, beamed by this stuff. Yes, yes, and, and, uh, and, and, and also you're not, you're not radiating uh, somebody in your presence who may be sensitive. You know, you don't know, mm-hmm. and they may not even know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's a great practice, and what that will do for you is uh, remember that the, the, the EMF exposure is cumulative, so if you're, if you're knocking that stuff down continuously, it allows you to to uh, to be in a very uh, nasty environment for longer without without having a, a serious effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's an yeah, excellent practice. And I wish I wish more people would do the same. Uh, you know, and and uh, carry their phones around. Uh, and obviously, if you're expecting some kind of emergency call or whatever it may be, then you leave it on. But yeah. for most of the phone calls people receive, um, you know, or, uh, or their need to get on the Internet, uh, you know, there is just, there's no reason to be carrying around and actually transmitting uh, RF source. Mm, sure. Larry, I had a quick question on, um, <clears throat> on our last show that you were, you were with us, um, and I can't remember if this was actually on the air or if it was before we started the show, but you had mentioned briefly your set up at home uh, that you have to minimize your own exposure within your home. And um, <clears throat> I wondered for some people in our audience who have some technical experience um, who might be able to set something similar up, if you could, uh, if you could just describe the setup that you have and maybe give some, uh, some tips on how other people might be able to achieve the same uh, configuration. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really good question, Jonathan. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, there's there's uh, more and more people uh, are are abandoning abandoning their their landlines, uh, AT and T, you know, and so on and so forth, because they're getting so expensive compared to the cell phones they carry around anyway, and so they just simply operate with the cell phones. Uh, unfortunately, of course, that brings the cell environment into your home and, and uh, all the issues that we've been talking about. Uh, so one uh, one one way to get around that is uh, if you go to Verizon or AT&T or any of the big guys, uh, you'll find that their their stores have got a little a little box that you can uh, you know, buy the cell phone service for. And this little box, you know, it's got an antenna on it. 
and it costs like 20 bucks a month. I think AT&T is even less than that. And uh, you can use that to drive all of the phones in your home. Uh, so in your landline goes away, and all your phones work just exactly like the landline did, but they're actually going through a, this little box. Now, the way you make that EMS safe is that little box, you undo the antenna and you hook a cable to it, and that's an external antenna. And then you put that antenna, run it through a cable outside, and point it, you know, r- uh, roughly at the uh, in the direction of where you know the closest tower is. Mm-hmm. So what that does contains all the RF, all the phones work inside, but there is no RF inside the home environment. It's only reading fairly low power level because you've got an antenna that has some gain to it, and it's reading primarily in the direction of that tower. So there you have a permanent cell phone home setup. And by the way, if you have an RV, you can you can just simply unhook the box and take it with you, and your your uh, your home phone number rings in the RV or wherever you're going. So uh, you know that, that's a really good viable solution for people who want to have a good cheap phone service to the home, like AT and T. But they, they would rather use, you know, a much cheaper, you know, service through the cell network. So that's what I do myself, and, uh, you know, it's, it's far cheaper. Here, uh, I think uh, the uh, bills went up to um, probably more than $75 a month, and that's that's just for a standard landline. Mm-hmm. So at those prices, you know, uh, you'll save an awful lot by just putting in this, uh, this cell phone-based network. Uh, runs all your phones and uh, it doesn't radiate you at all. Hmm. Sure. So, are you actually using a a wireless cell phone in the house, or do you have a a, <clears throat> a, a corded phone hooked up to the space station? Uh, you mean uh, you mean the phones that I actually have in the house? Yeah, you mentioned that you have the antenna and you you have the antenna base station. And you have that running out of the house to another unit, which is pointing at the cell tower in the house. Are you actually using a cell phone, or do you have like a, a, a standard landline phone hooked up to your base station? Uh, yeah, the the the, the box uh, that you get from the cell phone company has, has got a connector on it that goes and hooks to your your central cell phone network in the house. Gotcha, gotcha. And okay. so all you do and then all your phones work just like they always did with the landline. Mm, sure. So it's, uh, it's something that most people don't, don't know about. And, uh, you know, if you're if you're serious about, you know, trying to reduce your, your cell phone exposure and you, you're using your cell phone as your home phone, you know, this, this, this other option is uh, a much better way to go. And we'll uh, take all sure. that radiation that that's that, uh, dealing with with the phone and and leave it outside and uh, away from the house. Sure. If you don't mind me picking your brain just for a minute, but, um, <clears throat> the the cable that you have running outside is that a, a coax cable? Yes, it's coax, uh, low loss, uh, and for the for the cell phone antennas, it's seventy five ohm uh, cable. So uh, um, okay. the uh, 
one cable that is low velocity to get the antenna along the line is uh, that probably got about uh, 100 feet of cable. You get that thing out and away, and then you can put it on a little pole, uh, whatever. Uh, just find out where, if you're going to use Verizon, find out where the nearest Verizon tower is. If you can use AT&T, find out where that tower is. And then uh, the antenna has got some gain, too. The antenna costs about, uh, I think it's about 100 uh, a hundred bucks or something like that, but but they're uh, they're they're referred to as a Yagi antenna, Y A G I, and uh, they're made for cell phones. They're seventy five ohms uh, in Peyton, and the cable you want, you know, is uh, one one uh, low loss cable is is uh, referred to as LMR one hundred. Okay, so the antenna that you have outside is not your standard kind of dish. Antenna. It's more of one that kind of looks like um, <clears throat> maybe a, it has a spine in the middle with the wires coming off of each side. Yeah, kind of like an old TV antenna. Okay. Yep. Yep. That's it. That's cool. it. So that's cool. a, that's the only thing you have is the antenna, the cable, and of course the, the labor to put that in. And then uh, uh, you will need, you may need uh, a, uh, a connector, a very small connector to interface the cable with uh, with the uh, unit that you get from the cell people. And uh, they can okay. they can uh, tell you what that is. Uh, they're in a couple of boxes, something like that. But uh, you may need that depending on uh, what you have. But uh, you can get that from electronic stores, stuff like that. Sure. Well, Larry, speaking of house setup, um, in one of the articles you wrote, you said it was very important not to have panel boxes in living areas. Um, yes. If you can't move the box, what are some measures you can take to reduce the, the dirty noise coming off of the panel box? Well, one thing you want to do for sure is is, uh, uh, is, is to filter the grid. Uh, so that, that's where you get into the, uh, the Stetzer filters or the Greenway filters and try to get the, the noise power you know, on the grid as low as possible. Mm-hmm. But in, in addition, you know, if you have uh, a panel box that's uh, you know, kind of adjacent to or part of the living space, uh, you really are better off, especially with children. Especially don't let children have access to that space for any length of time. Mm-hmm. And you're really far better off uh, making, you know, trying to wall, not wall it off, but to make it so that it's not functional living space. And it's not a huge area. It just means that within, you know, three, four feet of that entire, you know, area of that panel box, that you uh, make sure that that space is not used for living space. Is there some kind of screening you can put around the box or insulation or anything? No, there is. As far as the magnetic field goes, mm-hmm. there is nothing you can do. Uh, uh, if you, you can use uh, shielding for the electric field, uh, but <clears throat> but the magnetic field is a big a big risk with those. And uh, there's nothing you're going to be able to do to get that magnetic field down. It, it penetrates everything. So uh, there's, there's no there's no shielding approach for dealing with the panel box. Mm. So in that case, filtering is the way to go. Well, filtering, but 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 even then, uh, you know, with, with a high magnetic field, mm-hmm. I would still 
uh, be sure to try to keep that, that uh, whatever living space is adjacent to that, uh, not be used for long-time lounging. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, I mean, I'm going to lounge here right here. <laughs> that, Larry, that makes me wonder about um, the uh, <clears throat> this new uh, kind of craze of the compact fluorescent bulbs. And I, I have done some, some reading on that, that those put out a, a kind of a scattered um, field, uh, electromagnetic field. What, what is the, uh, the impact of those small compact fluorescents versus your standard, like, tube fluorescent bulb? Is it much less? Is it the same? Uh, I, I kind of lost I, Something dropped out there. What, oh, what sure. is the impact of... Uh, of the uh, of compact fluorescent light bulbs versus the standard tube fluorescents, is there much difference in the impact, or are those should should those also be kind of avoided like the plague? Well, I, I would avoid those like the plague for for another reason, and it has to do with the mercury in them. Oh, sure. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you you drop one of those balls and. Uh, and it shatters, uh, you know, you've got a, an EPA-level cleanup to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've definitely noticed the uh, the effect from compact fluorescence uh, myself. I uh, got a desk lamp um, from somebody that was given to me, and it had a, a compact fluorescent bulb in it. And I just started to notice that every time I was sitting at my desk when I had this light on, I just started to get really tired and, and kind of um, disoriented feeling and... Uh, eventually, I narrowed it down to the bulb, and I replaced it with just a standard, you know, regular um, regular light bulb, and I noticed a difference immediately. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd say that those those compact fluorescents are definitely giving off something. Yes, they are. Uh, you know, I I, I think the, the bigger reason not to use them uh, up front, but uh, but also. Quality of light, I think, is an issue, and then uh, you know, also you are going to have high mag- high mag fields, uh, magnetic fields, off that because of the nature of of the uh, current that is actually uh, you know running through to produce those. That um, it, it looks it'll look like uh, less of a you know uh, a uh, line source. It'll look more like a point source, but it's still going to be strong, and you don't want that thing close to you. Um, but the real danger is is the and there are many many uh, tragic cases of of this. Um, the the big long fluorescent tubes uh, because of the the large separation and the net current that you end up having to to run to you know to uh, produce the light uh, produce very strong magnetic fields that do not actually go down very much with this. They go down as uh, and like uh, as they would from a line source because the tube is so long, and from a line source you don't get nearly the uh, the attenuation with distance that you would from a point source. So uh, that's the physical difference uh, between uh, you know the uh, attenuation of those fields. But now picture a situation where you've got let's say you've got a condominium complex that has underground parking. And the underground parking lot has got, you know, a big, huge array of all these fluorescent tubes to keep the area lit. 
Well, the first floor of the apartment building is right above those tubes. And people that, uh, that inhabit those first floor apartments do not realize that they are dealing with very high magnetic fields. And that's all from those lights. And there have been many cases, uh, you know, that have been documented where these people, you know, have eventually become seriously ill. And it has been tied back to the magnetic field exposure from these fluorescent lights that are on 24 7. Um, so I'm very Oh, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, oh, fluorescent lights in general. Fluorescent lights in general should be something that you you certainly eliminate from your own home and be aware of wherever else they may be in your environment, especially in, in the work sure. environment. Um, not to uh, to change gears too much, but I had a uh, a question about house wiring. Um, and uh, living in a in a rural area where I do, there's a lot of older homes here, even up to 100, 120-year-old homes. Um, and a lot of them have what's called the uh, <clears throat> the old knob and tube wiring, uh, which is a holdover, you know, from, from back in the day before, uh, you know, obviously not everything was brought up to code or, or re, uh, refitted. Um, and it, my question being, is there a great difference uh, between those two styles of house wiring as far as the uh, the kind of dirty electric field within the home, uh, is knob and tube wiring worse for that? Uh, does it act as like maybe a more potent antenna? Um, would it be worth uh, somebody updating their wiring just for that reason, despite you know the other safety concerns and things? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know the older wiring, uh, like knob and tube, uh, that that that. That stuff was was put in place uh, long before the current versions of the uh, National Electric Code. And mm-hmm. one thing about the National Electric Code that you know, people should understand is that it's written very specifically to avoid net current. That is, to okay. avoid magnetic field inside the home. And uh, any knob and tube kind of stuff is more than likely going to have very high levels of magnetic field. So uh, I would recommend that uh, rewiring be a priority uh, for any of that kind of situation. And, uh, you know, there's there's a, a lot of the wiring is usually in those homes is, is uh, accessible. Um, and maybe that, you know, in many cases the job is not that big of a job, uh, you know, certainly not necessarily uh, tearing into walls and all that if, if it's available up in the attic. But... Uh, but I think it's a worthwhile thing to do, uh, regardless. And uh, and and I and I think that you know what Carl Riley says in his book, in his book where where he talks about um, diagnosing and finding uh, wiring errors. Um, people should be aware of it. You know, if Carl, people like Carl, uh, have got tremendous amounts of experience, years and years and years of going through the various homes, office buildings, so on and so forth, and trying to find wiring errors that produce net current. And, uh, you know, his conclusion is uh, after talking with many other electricians, and uh, and I have to agree with them, um, that uh, there's probably at least one wiring error in every single home. And that, that one, one wiring error is net current, you know, when you have particular appliances turned on. 
magnet. So the the elevated magnetic field are are uh, uh, exhibited in, in just just about every single home with uh, with even just one wiring error. So hmm. you know, I would, I would go beyond just trying to fix the old stuff and say that it's very worthwhile for you to just simply get a cheap gas meter and run around the house with things turned on and see if you could find elevated magnetic fields uh, in any given circuit. And if so, get it fixed. Mm. Sure. Larry, I have a question that you mentioned earlier on the show about rice technology. I would like to know what it is and if you can talk about it briefly. About uh, what technology? Rice rice technology. Oh, the rice, yeah. Uh, the, the, the Royal Rice, uh, you know, devices and many of those are very similar to it. Uh, they do not use anything associated with, you know, a, uh, a wideband signal. And, and uh, there, there is evidence and there is, a, you know, lots of other scientific evidence uh, that they, you know, coming from various different, uh, you know, different places and sources that there is a health benefit to particular frequencies that are tones. So there's no bandwidth to it. It's just simply a sine wave CW tone. And in that case, uh, we're talking about, you know, something that, that uh, where you might say, well, that's an electromagnetic field, uh, so on and so forth. And that's where I try at the beginning to distinguish between CW tones and signals that have lots of bandwidth. Okay. So the the rife uh, technology and some of the uh, related uh, uh, instruments that you see out there on the market now probably uh, very well do have a beneficial effect against certain conditions, and uh, they appear to be tied to various different kinds of frequencies. So, but they're all CW tones. There's no noise bandwidth associated with these, and uh, there are quite a few physicists uh, that do insist that whether it's an electric field or magnetic field, if it's a tone-like nature, it's not going to have a, uh, a negative health effect, even at very high levels. Is that kind of like the uh, pulsed electromagnetic field therapy that you see around? I, I've seen those uh, in a couple places, people offering this uh, pulsed electromagnetic or pulsed EMF, PEMF it's sometimes called. No, no, uh, that's that's where I, I have a little problem with with those devices. Mm. Um, when they say, as soon as you say pulse, hey, you're talking about wideband. Mm. All right, it may, be, it may not be extremely wideband. They may be just uh, kind of kind of turning the carrier on and off, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. So the bandwidth may be small, but as soon as you start approaching, you know, a larger and larger bandwidth. Then you're going to have, uh, you know, larger and larger negative health effects. Hmm. So uh, I'm not familiar with what waveforms they use in the PEMF devices, but hmm. I would be very leery about, you know, anything that is claiming pulse. Hmm. Um, you know, and I, I want to look at the bandwidth, you know, and, and what the highest frequency content is, and that will give me an idea of how noise-like uh, of the signal it may be actually propagated. Right, Larry. Have you had any personal experience with uh, any of the right stuff, like uh, like the MWO, the multiple wave oscillator, or anything like that? 
you mean with with the the, the right stuff? Yeah, I'm just wondering if you've ever experienced, you know, a, a treatment session with any of that technology yourself. Um, I haven't, but I know a few people who have, and they've claimed some beneficial results from it. So I was just curious. Well, it's quite possible. Uh, no, I've never, never um, uh, actually experienced anything, uh, you know, from a, a clinical standpoint. Um, you know, there, there, uh, there are devices that are diagnostic. That use a uh, you know a bunch of tones and a response from those tones to do a diagnosis. Uh, it's when you hold a couple of uh, electrodes and the device goes through and it uh, steps through a bunch of frequencies, so on and so forth, and then uh, it comes back with a uh, with a uh, uh, with a diagnosis of you know various different problems in different uh, organs. Um, and a, a very interesting device. Uh, I did I did uh, do one of those, and um, I had uh, I had a bridge that was causing I was getting uh, some infection underneath that, which I've had since had removed. But um, that was giving me, I definitely had an infection back up in there, and uh, the uh, doctor that uh, that applied the machine to me went through and. And, uh, you know, he just, he came over to me and he, he pointed at the, right the, at the area where, where I, uh, I had that infection. And I told him, indeed, I've, I've got a problem with that bridge right there. So I was, uh, I was amazed that, you know, he could point to something, uh, you know, like that, uh, based on, on this machine that used a series of tones and my, my physical response to those tones. Uh, so I, I can't explain it in any way, but uh, that was my experience. Cool. There's a follow-up to that, Larry, is um, the way that MRIs or CAT scans work, do they use pulse frequencies, or do you know? Yes, yes. And uh, you know, for that reason, um, you know, a, a MRI is not something you would want to uh, live in. But, uh, you know, for a short period of time, again, it should not be a problem because, you know, you're, that's an environment that only lasts a period of the test and uh, you're out of it and, uh, you know, you're, you're often, uh, often running uh, somewhere else. So from the diagnostic standpoint, you know, I, I, don't, I wouldn't really want a CAT scan either because the, the extra variation is very high. Mm-hmm. But if I have to, and it's a short period of time, yeah, I've got no problem with it. Okay. I guess uh, <clears throat> I, uh, while we're on the while we're on the question train, I, I had a quick question too, and I don't know. You said your background is in electrical engineering, um, so I don't know how familiar you are with like radiological uh, technology, but. Um, the chiropractor that I see from time to time uh, has an x-ray, and um, I had expressed some concerns about that, and he said, well, it's a high-frequency x-ray, and you get a much less uh, concentrated dose of radiation than you would, say, if you were in the hospital. So I wondered if you could speak to that, if you're familiar with that technology at all. Uh, Is there a great difference, and is there something that that people should be asking about, um, specifically, I guess, with with a chiropractor, or any other practitioner who's using X-ray uh, machines, are there some that are better and others that are worse? Well, there, 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 
I'm sure there are. Um, I'm not really familiar with the uh, various devices out there or how much radiation they put out, but um, I do know that uh, that something like a CAT scan is a a tremendous dose compared to what you get in the dentist office, you know, or something like that. So uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I would be much more concerned about, you know, whether or not, you know, you have a, a... a large number of CAT scans mm-hmm. in a short period of time sure. than I would be with, you know, something in the dentist's office. Sure. Again, all well, these we, uh, all these sources that uh, are, are sure on for a short period of time, uh, it extends to the EMF area just the same. The killer is, you know, that, that continuous environment that... Uh, you don't realize you're exposing yourself to 24/7, or for large parts of the day, or in the bedroom, for example. Uh, you know, all those places you spend a lot of the time are the places that you want to search out. You know, the sources of uh, EMF, and uh, mm-hmm. you know your short-term diagnostic kind of stuff. Uh, you know, it's just that it's short-term. Uh, yes, you would not want to be in that environment for long periods of time. But, you know, for testing purposes and, and, uh, and health, uh, I wouldn't shy away from that at all. Mm. Sure. Mm. One other thing comes to mind, too, about uh, um, <clears throat> the use of appliances. Uh, I, and this is, I'm, I'm a total layperson in this area, so that's why I'm asking. Um, I had had a, a friend at one time uh, years ago uh, tell me that. Um, for appliances that don't need to stay plugged in all the time, uh, like, of course, a refrigerator or a freezer needs to be plugged in continuously, but say something like a coffee pot or a microwave um, or even lamps or anything like that, that while they're plugged in, they're emitting more of a uh, more of an EM field uh, than, of course, when they're not plugged in. Uh, is that too nitpicky? Is that something that people should be concerned about, like, you know, I, I might use my microwave just infrequently, and while it's not being used, should I unplug it, or does that really even make a difference? Uh, I wouldn't worry too much about that one example, but um, but sure. you, you will have an effect uh, on the uh, on the noise on the grid uh, for uh, for transformers that are plugged in uh, that are. Uh, you know, like your wall warts, you know, all the transformers for your uh, your cell phone and all these other devices. That those mm-hmm. are a good idea just to leave unplugged. Um, not from a magnetic field standpoint. You can have to get awfully close to them to worry about that. But they will contribute to you know some additional noise on the on the grid. Uh, there, okay. It reminds me that there there's another device that. Uh, I was very surprised to find uh, produced so much noise, but the, that was a uh, uh, an ionizer, uh, an air ion generator. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly, the, the model was a sharper image, uh, stands about three and a half feet tall, three feet tall. Uh, but all of these devices, uh, because of the way they operate, produce a tremendous amount of noise on the grid. So you may have a, a, a home that reads, you know, it's extremely quiet, and you plug one of these devices in and you turn it on, and you've all of a sudden got a very high level up to a thousand units of, uh, of noise or even higher that's now on your home grid. 
and this, this is, uh, you know, people think that they're doing a, a very good thing, healthy, you know, ionize the air, and, you know, help to take out, you know, toxins in the air and so on and so forth. But they don't realize that they're putting a tremendous amount of noise on their home grid. And, and unless that, that's filtered out, uh, you may be, you know, treating, you know, something for, you know, something much worse. Hmm. Sure. So it probably, it probably does help to to uh, uh, to unplug certain things. Um, other things, I don't think it makes any difference. I'm not sure the microwave would, would make any difference. Um, yeah. But again, it, you know, it all depends on the device and uh, you know how it's uh, uh, how it's producing uh, power. If it's producing DC in order to uh, to power, like all your your transformers plug into the wall. And that can be a source of noise if it goes back on the grid, but uh, it's not going to be a significant source of mag fields. Sure. <clears throat> that reminds me, uh, kind of in a in a sideways way, about the uh, there was some controversy, geez, almost ten years ago now, about uh, broadband over power lines, and that uh, they were going to start serving broadband internet over the existing power lines, but there was a backlash from. Uh, first responders and people that use point-to-point communication because the noise that was going to be generated off the lines was going to disrupt a lot of that. I don't know if you if you remember when that was kind of around, but it seems to have faded into the background at this point. Yeah, well, um, you know, uh, that would be a very bad idea in my, in my opinion also. Uh, not just from the standpoint of, of radiation, but you're putting a, a whole bunch of wideband noise on your grid. Mm, and sure. uh, I know this is out there where people can uh, can use their home grid to uh, to communicate via computers and so on and so forth. But again, you know what you're doing is you're putting a, a whole bunch of noise on your own grid. And mm. uh, and by the way, if you filter on that, uh, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So that tells you right there that you, know, you you probably do not want to do that because you are exposing yourself to a uh, an, an EMF noise source that uh, you do not want over the long haul. Yeah. Well, I think um, – yeah, Doug, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, no, I know that uh, Larry had said um, that, you know, there were a couple of studies that he covered in um, in his series of articles there. Um, I was just wondering if there was any any studies in particular that you uh, you maybe wanted to cover to, 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 to mention. Uh, we're really, uh, what I did in those articles is uh, those are, um, you know, picking up, you know the uh, the studies that, that the very few studies actually that uh, that actually show an EMF footprint very clearly in the epidemiological data, and they do mm-hmm. so at very high probability against it being random. Mm-hmm. So that was the criteria that I used for selecting those studies. So I would just refer folks to to read about those studies because you won't find very many of this quality. And they're only the ones that uh, that really show an EMF footprint in the epidemiological data. Hmm. Uh, there are, there must be thousands and thousands and thousands of studies on plants, animals, mice, rats, 
you know, you name it, all the way up to, you know, people and so on and so forth. But but um, there are very few that you can say are conclusive about, you know, what the effects, you know, are. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to do just simply show those few that uh, doctors get behind, uh, you know, a whole bunch that, you know, they're, they're very, very respected studies in the uh, community and they, uh, they, they are exemplary in terms of being able to, uh, to show what the EMF footprint looks like. Mm. But again, you know, uh, even in all these, these different studies, you've got to keep in mind that uh, you still have, you know, a, a poor diet and you have uh, toxic exposure and those things will confound the results of any study. And this is why it's, yeah. so, it's so hard uh, to figure out, you know, uh, that's why it's so hard to find a study, for example, that actually conclusively shows something. Because, mm-hmm. sure. you know, we're, we're in this, uh, and it's the same problem with, with uh, you know, toxic, toxic exposure and, uh, and diet. If you're trying to show that, hey, this is the, the, these are the things in these areas that you need to, to do, and here's why they're, they're good, and epidemiological studies that show this, it's the same difficulty there, because there are compounding effects in the other categories that unless you account for, you're not going to have a clean, uh, measurable solution. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's why I think it's, it's very important to understand that uh, EMF in the context of all the other chronic conditions that we expose ourselves to that eventually lead to uh, chronic disease. Mm-hmm. But I think that the the evidence is in there from the studies, uh, that, uh, and, and certainly uh, cases where people have uh, recovered significant uh, function as a result of cleaning up their EMF environment. And a lot of the things that you can do are fairly simple, and they're they're going to be outlined in the next article. The the final article that will come out on thought is going to be devoted to just the things you can do to measure, characterize your environment so that you can take corrective action where you can and uh, and improve, possibly uh, on orders of magnitude, uh, your exposure and uh, clean up your, your environment just like you would uh, clean up your diet or, uh, you know, do a, do a detox. <laughs> so so I, I think it's... I think it's, um, you know, very important to do, you know, work all three of these areas, not to mention stress and all the other stuff that you guys have, have talked about. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. they're all important, you know. But I think EMF uh, deserves a place up there to at least be aware of the environment you're in and, and how you can uh, you can improve on that uh, without going to great lengths. Yeah. Well, I think even beyond the studies, you know, a lot of the – the evidence for this is just how people have managed to improve their situation um, by cleaning up the EMF environment and by, you know, lowering their exposure. You know, people who have discovered that they are quite sensitive and, and have taken steps to kind of correct things and, and how much progress they can actually make there. I mean, that's that's quite telling in and of itself. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. I agree, Doug. And, and, uh, and there's a there's tremendous number of cases uh, of, of what you've uh, you, you're saying, 
And uh, you know, it, it, but, but what I guess what I'm trying to say is that is that you know, for people that are exposed to to a high high environment uh, and don't know it, uh, that they not wait until they become sensitive to do something about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the sensitive people are kind of like the canaries in the coal mine. You know, it's it's the warning system, and we should all be taking heed. Yeah, I think you're 100 percent right on that, and that's why I refer to uh, to Sayer G's uh, 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 paper on uh, celiac disease. But uh, mm. you know, and I think he's uh, right on here too. Is in the case of celiac, you know, we're looking at the tip of the iceberg uh, for cases that mm-hmm. are that are dealing with that. And uh, the chronic um, health effects of uh, gluten in general, you know, is, is huge. I mean, uh, it spans the uh, the entire list of chronic diseases. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I feel the same way, uh, you know, the same thing is true about EMS, just like you said. Mm-hmm. Well, Larry, this, <clears throat> this has been a really fascinating episode, just like the first one, and... Uh, Really appreciate you coming on. Um, I think uh, we'll go to Zoya's uh, pet health segment here shortly, unless any of our other hosts have any more uh, questions at the moment. You guys? I don't think we covered it. Yeah. Thanks, Larry. Cool. Cool. Okay. Well, guys, uh, have a good one, and uh, it was fun. Uh, We'll do it again sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks a lot, Larry. Thanks, Larry. if anybody wants to look up Larry's material on SOT.net, it's SOTT.net, um, you can search uh, by author for his name, Larry Dallas, um, or you can uh, just search for EMF, and you will most likely uh, be able to find uh, his articles there, uh, as well as a number of other really good resources uh, from SOT. And, of course, uh, Larry cites the studies that he's been talking about uh, in his articles, and that's a uh, it's a, a good jumping off point for anybody who might want to research this more. Um, <clears throat> let's go to Zoya's uh, pet health segment here for today. And uh, when we come back, we will, for our recipe for today, we're going to be talking about uh, pork rinds and how to make hamburger buns out of pork rinds. If you cut bread out of your diet a while back, uh, fear not, and you can have hamburger buns again. <laughs> zero cuts. So... Uh, we will we'll be back in a in a little bit, and here's Zoya. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today, we are going to talk about inflammation, particularly in cases of various injuries or wounds, and what you can do for your pet using simple things like cold and heat. By the way, the same information can be applied to humans too. First, what is inflammation? Inflammation is the body's natural protective response to either some tissue damage from natural wear and tear, it can be as a result from injury, over exercise, exposure to chemicals, heat, some sort of irritation, can be infectious in nature, like infection by bacteria or any other phenomenon. The inflammation process serves to destroy, dilute or wall off both the injurious agent and the injured tissues so that repair may be effective. In this sense, inflammation acts as an important sign that the body of your pet tries to fight off the damage. 
the classical signs of an inflammation are pain, heat, redness, swelling, and loss of function. So how does inflammation work? An inflammation develops in three basic phases. First, the inflammatory process begins with a short vasoconstriction uh, quickly followed by dilatation with an increase of vascular permeability or swelling. Second, the vascular permeability is sustained with phagocytes, cells which ingest and destroy microbes and debris to migrate to the injury site causing an increase in swelling and uh, oxidation of fluid from the vessels, clustering of local sites along the vessel wall, uh, phagocytosis of microorganisms, uh, disposal of the accumulated toxins and debris by the macrophage. Third, repair begins with the deposition of uh, fibrin in the vessels, the migration of fibroclast cells to the area, and the development of new normal tissue cells, also known as scar. This process involves over, evolves over several hours, eventually days, depending on the severity of the inflammatory problem. For example, within minutes after an injury, the dilatation of the uh, arterio arteriolus and the increased uh, permeability produce heat, edema, and redness, uh, unfortunately not seen through the coat. The large amount of warm blood flowing through the area produces both heat and redness. As the local temperature rises slightly, the various metabolic reactions proceed more rapidly and uh, release additional heat. Excess edema results from increased permeability of blood vessels, which permits more fluid to move from blood to tissue spaces. Pain, whether immediate or delayed, is a cardinal symptom of, of inflammation and is responsible for limited movement, if not complete immobility. Pain can result from the injury of nerve fibers, from irritation by toxic chemicals from microorganisms, or from the increased pressure from excessive edema. Although healing is initiated by local inflammation, excessive or prolonged inflammation may delay the healing and increase the scar from, uh, formation potential. The severity, timing, and local character of any particular inflammatory response depends on its cause, the area affected, and the condition of the dog uh, or a cat. Nutrition, exercise, age. And in order to be able to deal with inflammation successfully and know what kind of methods to apply, we need to be also aware of the, stage, of the, the stages of the inflammation. There are three main stages. The acute stage of the injury is the first 12 to 24 hours. The subacute stage is the next 24 hours to 72 hours. And the chronic stage is beyond uh, 72 hours. So uh, let, just, uh, let me just explain a bit about the chronic inflammation. A chronic inflammatory process is a prolonged, uh, prolonged and persistent low-grade inflammation marked uh, mainly by new connective tissue formation and occasional flare-ups with increased swelling. Over a long period of time, several weeks or months, a chronic inflammation can result in several inflammatory cascade problems. In the worst environment, it might trigger complementary uh, degradation symptoms, such as general tenderness in the uh, nearby tissues, 
like muscle groups, joint structures. Um, they can be compensatory muscle tension and the mood swings due to overall uh, aching feeling when moving. And sometimes it can be accompanied by loss of function. So now that we know what inflammation is, uh, how we are going to deal with it. Since during the first 24 hours, the inflammatory response involves increased permeability of the blood vessels and the resulting uh, exudation, we can apply cold in the form of ice therapy in order to constrict the blood vessels and prevent the excessive exudation. There are several methods of applying ice or cold therapy to your pet's body. Some are more effective than others. For example, magic bags or bean bags that are stored in the freezer are not particularly good at applying cold therapy because they lack the ability to hold on the heat emitted by the body, which causes them to warm up very quickly, only you know once removed from the freezer. They will not be able to reduce the temperature of soft tissues that are deeper than the skin. Homemade ice packs using alcohol and water uh, can be effective and an inexpensive way to use cold therapy, but must be watched with supervision so as to prevent uh, ingestion. Ice chips are considered to be the best and least expensive method of applying ice to the body. Ice has a very good heat absorption capability, which means it is able to absorb a lot of heat from the soft tissues, resulting in cooling effects that get uh, to, uh, to tissues deeper within the body. This is especially helpful with joints, which, which tend to have a lot of superficial bones and cartilage, which would prevent cold therapies from being effective. Another possible method is doing the so-called ice cup massage of the injured region. Now, during the uh, subacute stage, after 24 hours and before the 74, uh, 72 hours after the injury, it's good to do the so-called vascular flush. It involves alternating between cold and heat while the application of cold, heat, cold is used closer to the acute stage where the application of heat, cold, heat is used closer to the chronic stage or after the 72 hours. Heat is very efficient uh, for the chronic stage. Note that some chronic inflammations, especially when there is a flare-up, benefit also from the use of cold application. You can use all kinds of things as a source of uh, heat. Other hot water in a bottle, hot towels or heat pads or even heated pet beds. If it's a small area, you can cook an egg, wrap it in a blanket and apply it to the injury. If you have an infrared sauna blanket, wrap your pet with a blanket. Just remember that heat is contraindicated at the acute stage of inflammation and make sure that it won't be too hot. Also, uh, ideally both ice and heat should encompass the entire area of inflammation. For example, if your dog have, has a knee injury, in this case, the ice must be applied to the inside, outside, and front of the knee to be most effective. To do this, wrap your ice bags with cold, damp towels or old pillowcases. If your dog's coat is very thick, uh, the length of time to apply the ice therapy will increase. Uh, 
Apply the ice to the area for 20 minutes at a time, stopping to examine the skin every 5-10 minutes. Your pet may not be entirely happy about this because the body's natural physiological response is to produce an unpleasant sensation to prevent it from developing frostbite. What is normal is for the skin to take on a red, slightly irritated look. A white or firm skin indicates that damage to the skin is taking place and eye therapy needs to be stopped immediately. After the first 20 minutes, stop and let your pet rest. In some cases, your veterinarian may recommend re repeating eye sessions. Uh, 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off, several times a day in, in, is basically general rule for, for this kind of therapy. Another thing that can be helpful in case of inflammation is massage therapy. But, just like with heat, it is usually uh, counterindicated in the acute stage and in case of injury or the wound that already uh, that is already infected and there is pus and such. But, as I said before, you indeed may combine both cold therapy and massage by doing a gentle massage, massage with ice cup to numb the nerve endings, providing um, an um, analgetic uh, relief and to cause a vasoconstriction to flush excessive amount of fluids. After 24 hours and depending on the severity of symptoms, the swelling massage technique uh, can be applied. It is very efficient in the subacute and chronic stages of inflammation to further disperse excess fluid buildup. Uh, and always proceed with a very light touch and gradually progress to more pressure. Keep assessing the animal size to monitor the pressure. Combined with heat, cold applications and gentle uh, massage, you will maximize the body's natural healing ability and contribute to speed up recovery process. But as always, consult your veterinarian first for proper diagnosis in any situation. Well, this is it for today. Hope the information was useful. Have a great day and goodbye. That was some great information about inflammation and uh, how to deal with it. Um, and I think uh, from a pet and a human perspective, an uh, important point that she made there was that uh, inflammation increases the permeability of your cell walls so that, uh, you know, anytime you're in an inflammatory state, as is caused by, you know, <clears throat> uh, either toxic exposure or repeated bad diet or, like we've been talking about today, EMF exposure, that you're cells themselves are much more susceptible to uh, to damage. Um, mm. So it's something that we've been talking about and learning about for a while now, and a lot of people may not be familiar and just say, well, you know, inflammation is just what happens naturally, and, and it does, um, but the big cause for a lot of the problems that are around these days are, um, it, or is uh, chronic inflammation, uh, especially from the mm -hmm. diet, uh, from the modern American diet. Mm -hmm. um, so, speaking of diets, <clears throat> for our recipe today we have uh, pork rind-based hamburger buns, and uh, mm -hmm. I'd like to thank uh, Tiffany and, and her cohorts there for, for cluing me into some of these recipes. 
Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, it was, it was Karen's creativity that came up with this whole pork rind revolution. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. And I should I should clarify, I said zero carbs, but it's not exactly zero carbs, but it is near zero. It's very low. Uh, the pork rinds themselves have zero carbs, um, but you're using a few other things um, like eggs and some of your spices or a uh, sweetener like xylitol or stevia may have some carbohydrates, but this is still safe for a ketogenic diet. Um, <clears throat> the amount of carbs is very, very low. Um, so this was something that uh, I came up with based off the oven pan bread recipe um, because we were having hamburgers the other night and just thought, well, let's try to make some buns. Um, so it's uh, the recipe is uh, three eggs, um, three tablespoons of bacon fat or um, <clears throat> two tablespoons of ghee or unsalted butter and one tablespoon of bacon fat. So you can combine the bacon fat and the butter or you can just use bacon fat. Um, so it's three tablespoons, three eggs. <clears throat> um, and you want uh, three ounces of uh, pork rinds, uh, which is uh, approximately a bag worth, uh, depending on where you get them from, when you crush them down, it comes out to a little over a cup, um, maybe looking at like a cup, one and a quarter cups. And uh, do try to find, don't just grab pork rinds from the gas station, depending on where you're at. This is something that was new to me because I'm, I'm from a northern area of the United States and pork rinds are not readily available here. And if they are, they're, they're full of nasty preservatives and chemical additives. But apparently, and I've recently learned that in the South, you can just get pork rinds in a bag that are fried pork skins and salt. And it's just that. There's nothing else added. So that's really cool. Um, so you want to find <clears throat> good pork rinds. You should just be fried pork skin and salt. Um, and run those through like a Vitamix or a food processor or something to kind of powder it. Uh, you can crush it uh, with your hands, but it's not really that effective. It doesn't get down to the fine granular kind of form that you need it to be. So run it through a blender, food processor, Vitamix, anything like that. Um, so <clears throat> you end up with about, say, one and a quarter cups uh, or three ounces of pork rinds powdered. Uh, and then um, one and a quarter tablespoons of xylitol. Or if you're using stevia, I would just use two teaspoons of stevia. Um, there's kind of a difference in, like, the level of sweetness there. Um, and then uh, two teaspoons of baking powder uh, and one tablespoon of uh, apple cider vinegar. Uh, so you want to mix your uh, crushed pork rinds as well as the sweetener, whether it's xylitol or stevia, and the baking powder, um, all the dry ingredients together in one bowl. <clears throat> in another bowl, put in your eggs uh, whip up the eggs into kind of a froth <clears throat> and then add the uh, the bacon fats um, and the uh, apple cider vinegar to that. And then uh, slowly add your dry ingredients to the wet ingredients and kind of stir it together and you'll end up with what looks like a batter. Um, it should be pretty thick, like the consistency of thick pancake batter. Um, then I would lay out a, a cooking sheet, a cookie sheet. Uh, and for me, it works really well to put parchment paper down that way you don't have any problems with sticking. Um, so I put some parchment paper down on a cookie sheet and basically uh, lay out the, or, you know, dab the uh, the batter onto the cookie sheet in little rounds. 
Um, and this recipe made uh, five pretty good-sized hamburger buns. You could make them a little bit smaller and make six. Um, and then <clears throat> preheat the oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit uh, and uh, bake for 20 minutes. And uh, just check them before you take them out, but after 20 minutes, they should be nice and firm. Take them out, let them cool for about 10 minutes, and they don't puff up very much, but adding the, uh, the apple cider vinegar with the baking, uh, baking powder allows them to puff up uh, slightly. Uh, the combination of the acid and the alkaline there creates little air bubbles in the material. So you get kind of like puff, semi-puffy hamburger buns. Um, but due to the fact that these are based in pork rinds, uh, there's a lot of protein in there, and uh, you're gonna, it, they're going to be really filling. So it's not like where you can just hammer down two or three hamburgers. I had two with this recipe the other day and was stuffed, like uncomfortably stuffed. So I took it a little too far. Um, but uh, that's it. And, of course, when you, um, when you mix the dry ingredients together, you can play with it a little bit. If you want to make something that's a little bit um, like a herb kind of bun, you can add <clears throat> rosemary, thyme, uh, add garlic powder, onion powder. Um, I actually just added a, uh, a teaspoon of garlic powder and a teaspoon of onion powder, and that resulted in a nice um, kind of like a, a garlicky type uh, hamburger bun. So that's that. And there's on the uh, on the cast form, there are a lot of other recipes around uh, pork rinds, uh, things like uh, pancakes, uh, fried pork chop coating, turkey stuffing, pie crusts, chocolate chip cookies, brownies, uh, pan bread, tortillas, pizza crust. There's all sorts of things you can do from what we normally consider to be like the world of carbs and flour. Uh, you can do with just pork rinds, um, pork rinds and eggs with some variations. So that's our recipe for today. And uh, I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that. You might have a little bit more experience than me on, on this one. The only thing I have to add is that they're extremely yummy. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to try that. I already yeah. tried the brownies. I was so happy mm. with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're very good. I did make the tortillas as well, and they turned out really well. Well, that's that's our show for today. So we'd like to say thanks again to Larry for being on the show and offering his expertise in the field of uh, EMF and EMF exposure. Um, and we will be back uh, next week, and I believe that uh, we're going to be covering vitamin D and sun exposure next week. Um, so uh, thanks to everybody in our chat as well. Um, and please be sure to tune in next week. Just a reminder that this is our new time, uh, Friday, weekly Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern. And if you don't catch the live show, you can always go to Blog Talk Radio um, search for SOT, S-O-T-T, and uh, our shows are archived on the SOT Talk Radio page on Blog Talk Radio. So thanks again, everybody, and uh, we will see you next week. Bye, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Yeah.